Hey everyone, Austin Swanson here. Today I'm discussing Cardlytics and I'll be providing an update on the investment prospects of the business, as well as going over the current situation and the misconceptions related to liquidity and the bridge earnout payments, and specifically the bridge dispute. As of market close yesterday on December 22nd, uh, the stock price ended at $4.74 for a market cap approaching $150 million. Uh, for just a quick introduction, Carlos continues to be one of the most attractive investments I can find, even as I keep looking at other public companies, private businesses in my area, as well as commercial real estate. Given where the stock price is today, as well as the new information we learned at the third quarter earnings, as well as the December 7th conference, and given these misconceptions related to liquidity and the bridge earnouts, I felt it's appropriate time to provide an update. And so how I have structured this write-up and how I'll be doing the videos, first discussing the upside, as well as those fears and misconceptions, the liquidity and bridge earnout fears, uh, that people are worried will prevent the upside. And so what is the upside? Uh, to me, the opportunities on the upside uh, remain the same, right? Multiple, uh, significant cash flow that will lead to high valuations uh, that are multiples of today's market cap simply from ARPU increasing, average revenue per user increasing. And so you can stop it there, right? That That's the investment thesis. That, that's what I believe will happen. But people are going to wonder, uh, well, how high could average revenue per user increase? Uh, why is that possible? What's different today? What's changed? And what is Carlyx actively doing to be able to achieve those levels? Well, that's what I'm going to discuss. And so although those opportunities in my mind of, of the scenarios that are possible are the same, the probability of achieving some of the best scenarios or the ba best outcomes for Carlyx has increased because there was a recent CEO change in September 22nd, as well as the recent updates that he has provided at the third quarter earnings in December 7th conference. And so Cardlytics does not, this is something, you know, I'll present these valuation scenarios. And some people will look at the high valuations and I'll say, oh, that's ridiculous. Well, you know, I don't want to lose sight of Carlytics does not need to achieve 100% of what is possible in terms of ARPU or average revenue per uh, user for this to be a worthwhile investment. In fact, they only needed to achieve very little. Why is that? Well, one is the stock price is so low, but second of all, Carlytics has significant scale, significant amount of, of number of users, 184 million. So small changes across many users has a significant impact combined with the fact that there's intent or large amount of operating leverage in the business where Cardlytics is expected to be adjusted EBITDA positive in the second quarter of next year as well as free cash flow positive in the third quarter. So you're already reaching that critical mass point. So then as you keep scaling up revenue across many users, it'll drop to the bottom line, leading to large amount of cash flow in relation to today's low market cap. You only need small changes in that revenue. So if the goal of investing is to find a great business with great management at a great price, this is it. But you have to ask yourself, well, if it is such a great business with great management, why is it at a great price? If everyone recognized it as such, it should probably be trading at a higher price, so lower prospective returns. But that's why I believe that people don't realize that it's a great business, don't realize it has this new great management, and they don't believe it's at a great price. And so part of the reason for that is that they look at the, the historical nature of the business. They look at the first 14 years where it wasn't really necessarily about monetizing the asset as much as it was of creating the asset. 14 years to build these banking relationships. People lose sight of. It took from 2008 to 2018, I believe, to get to just, uh, you know, you only had B of A. And you only had about 65 million MAUs. It, was, it wasn't until after 
that they signed Chase and Wells Fargo. So it wasn't that long ago that they finally started getting it to this scale of 184 million MAU. So if you just look at that, you might be saying, they're not producing that much cash flow. There must not be anything here. Well, now that we're at the second half of the business, and that's what we're focusing on, where they've built this great asset that needs to be monetized, which leads us to why people don't realize there's this new management that, uh, that has been brought in that has that more tech-oriented background to be able to monetize this asset. And lastly, in terms of why people might not realize that there's this, you know, that it's trading at a great price is in terms of how they're thinking about average revenue per user. They might be using a more linear model. They might be thinking in terms of, oh, let's put a double digit uh, revenue growth into our formula and we'll see what it outputs. Oh, that's not that much, right? Instead of thinking in terms of what I'll be discussing about, or they just don't know why that average revenue per user could scale up faster, or they just don't think, maybe they believe that. Maybe they believe every single one of those things, which I think many do, uh, but then they think, well, there's the liquidity issue and the bridge are now payments in this dispute. So they think that could prevent those from happening, so it's not trading at a good price, which leads me to the next thing we're gonna be discussing, which is this current fear, right? Today, many people are worried about the bridge earnouts and their impact to the liquidity in combination with the macro, right? I believe there are misconceptions related to the liquidity position, even under worse than expected macro uh, environment. And there's misconceptions related to the bridge earnouts. Uh, people are using incorrect assumptions, as well as what the dispute could entail. I think many are just not even estimating this, right? <laughs> and so Cardlytics has plenty of liquidity to handle the macro uh, headwinds, the bridge earnouts, and I believe that the risk related to the bridge earnouts and the dispute is much lower than people realize and even lower than I first realized, given I previously had incomplete information, which I'll discuss. So I think this works out very well because I understand what people were worried about. Not only am I getting, uh, you know, seeing what people are saying, talking with others, reading what they're writing, I also had a, some previous concerns and it wasn't until I discussed with others, saw or heard from management, as well as just continue to read and look at the business that I found out, hey, this isn't as big of a deal that I thought it was. So I feel Credit stories it relates to the stock price has been one of the most compounded and overweighted fears. First, you had the B of A renewal. People thought, oh, B of A is testing fig. They're not gonna renewal. Uh, and there was a delay, but sure enough, B of A renewed. Then you had Chase, uh, the fear that Chase was gonna leave because back in July of this year, uh, Chase acquired Fig, again, a competitor of Cardlytics. And so here we are today, many months later, Chase is still using Cardlytics. Chase said, hey, we plan on continuing to use Cardlytics. Fig is for something else, it's more related to SMB. And now we believe that you know Chase is actually on the new ad server. They're the way that Cardlytics got to 50% of MAUs on the new ad server. And so now you have those, you know, technically in the past, but now people are worried about the bridge earnouts and the macro and the liquidity. And so in each case, I believe it was understandable uh, of being con concerned upon first hearing about it, right? It's, it's not the best news when you're hearing about it, but upon digging a little deeper, you can see that the probability and the magnitude of a bad outcome in relation to first drawn conclusions wasn't, was pretty small. <laughs> and so one thing, you know, before we get into all the details, I, two or just a few just real quick things I want to touch on. What I find amazing is the number of investors and individuals who will look at a company with a very large stock price decline, like Cardlytics, and will not be interested to dig a little deeper and wonder, hey, is this trading below intrinsic value? Is this trading below maybe near-term cash flow generation possibilities? Or is there accuracy to these claims or these uh, concerns of others? If not, man, maybe this is a trading at attractive price. Because usually where there's large stock price declines is 
sometimes a good place to look. But that's not what I'm seeing. I mean, one thing is I think that there's people that are not familiar with Carlytics um, and maybe don't really even understand what the misconceptions or, or the fears are, but they just see a large stock price decline and they're like, there must be a reason for the decline. And so I'm not going to look any further, right? They'd rather have it just go up into the right. <laughs> or there's those the, uh, there's individuals who are familiar with Carlytics and maybe they sold in the past for one of those previous concerns. They see the stock price decline and think, I must be right. Good thing I sold, even though they sold for the wrong reasons that their concerns proved to be incorrect, right? And given the previous incorrect predictions of the business related to B of A and Chase, as well as these current misconceptions related to liquidity in the bridge earn I think the stock price decline has just made this an even more attractive investment, right? Uh, given we can see and read the concerns of others, uh, then we can know, hey, that is largely to explain for the stock price dec decline. We can then look to see and verify those concerns and see, hey, many of them are not correct concerns. In terms of focusing on the business, I believe too many uh, think too differently compared to if this was a private business. That's kind of the way that I tried to treat this is if this was a private business, what am I, how am I thinking about it? How am I looking about it? How am I investing? And people, I think, are just too focused on the daily stock price uh, to determine how the business is doing or to assess their even previous thoughts, right? But some might jump and say, ha, gotcha, Austin. Uh, <laughs> today's stock price does impact the second bridge earnout. But then I would, I would say they don't realize that Carlytics has enough liquidity to pay 100% of the second bridge earn out to avoid using any stock, any dilution. So it doesn't matter, right? And again, I believe part of that misunderstanding or not seeing this is from focusing too much on the stock price and not focusing on the uh, uh, on the actual business and the surrounding information. I'll be going that into that on more detail because I think it's an extremely important point that people are losing sight of. So why now? Right? If you were ever interested in Carlytics, uh, now's the time to look at a little closer. This is because it's at an all-time low stock price uh, with, with a market cap that is extremely small in relation to not only what is possible for cash flow generation, but what I believe might happen in the not-too-distant future combined with all the recent changes in the business, the improvements in the business uh, that I believe increase the odds of that occurring. So before I go into detail, I just want to say, I, you know, I haven't done a post or a full write-up or video in a while, but I have been adding a lot of the detail, even this post this, I did a draft of this. Uh, I've been adding a ton to my research notes. I have the Carlytics research notes. I have one even on Carvana. I've been adding to general research notes and actually where I've been spending a lot of time and I haven't posted it yet, but I plan to in the future. It's regarding prospective public company investments as I'm looking at new ideas, adding all my notes. But in relation to Carlytics, I've been adding a ton of notes on Carlytics, a ton over the last few months. I just haven't done a public post. Um, and so if you're interested in having that information, information I haven't made public, uh, or even something like this, right? I posted this draft maybe a week ago. If you want information sooner, uh, make sure you upgrade to the research notes. So the opportunity, again, in terms of the way I've thought about what the opportunity is, I wanted to try to do something different than I've done in the past. And so I have these different ARPU evaluation scenarios with the where I'm keeping monthly active users the same at 184 million, but I'm trying to do, you know, have these specific average revenue, average revenue per user scenarios. So the first one is back in 2018, Cardlytics just had, you know, B of A as the big bank with 65 million MAUs. They were at $2.30 of average revenue per user. Now, what has happened is Cardlytics has scaled the number of users significantly at an extremely fast pace because you sign up a bank, has a ton of users. So uh, monthly active users scales dramatically. And so if you're taking revenue divided by monthly active users, that creates a denominator effect. 
where, av where the number of users is scaling so much more quickly than revenue, so it makes revenue, average revenue per user, drop. And so I believe, you know, if you look at B of A, they probably have an average revenue per user, probably similar to that today, if not higher of what they had back in 2018, around 2030 cents. Uh, but you've had this averaging effect because you just added all these new users. So what could we say? Well, if Carlix has accomplished this in the past or even today within B of A, they should be able to achieve this with the other uh, banks as well to lead to at least $2.30, if not a little higher, because now actually the value proposition for advertisers has increased. You have a larger reach as well as you can probably find better individuals to target it. And so I've said, hey, they should be able to get to at least $3 of revenue per user, right? If that happens, you're already leading to cash flow generation. And so you can actually put a multiple on that, that a conservative multiple in relation to that there's not a lot of additional costs that need to go in the business to fund that growth, as well as a long runway for even higher growth. And so again, you're leading to a valuation that is in multiples of today with barely, you know, not much more than what's already been accomplished in the business. But that ignores, you got a new CEO, uh, you have, you're adding the new answer with the new UI and product level offers and machine learning, and you have all these new improvements. So you should probably do better than that, right? And we've heard that even management said, hey, we could probably hit high single digits. And so I said, okay, well, let's even just put even on long term, if we, we, we can reach $10 right of ARPU. And then I also put this in perspective of Snapchat as well, uh, just the United States, because we're just talking about MAUs in the United States. We're not talking about the international growth. Uh, we're not talking about even the, the new US banks that Carlos is, is in discussions with, but and nor are we discussing uh, the international banks where uh, Kareem has even talked about expanding internationally, which I'll touch on. But if we just look at the, the uh, Snapchat, North American, uh, trailing 12 months, ending in the third quarter of 2022, that ARPU, uh, you lead to crazy valuation scenario of over 40 billion, uh, let alone if you look at Meta with 200 of, of average revenue per user in the US and Canada, you lead to just an insane valuation, right? But here's the thing, and I'm gonna discuss this. I mean, first and foremost, you do not need those valuation scenarios for this to be attractive investment. That's what I'm trying to highlight here. You need very little in terms of increasing. So right now, a trailing 12 months, ARPU was around at Carlytics, $1.59. So if you get to just to a little bit more, you lead to very attractive investment returns, but you have these nice asymmetric outcomes that I believe have a higher probability of occurring than people realize. Because people will look at those valuation scenarios, jump to the conclusion, that is absolutely ridiculous, you're full of it, let's not go further in this, right? But here's the thing, I think people lose sight of that Carlix actually has advantages over these other channels. So not only do I think they could get these levels of ARPU, I, I don't see why they couldn't get even more than that. Right, and I know, I know that gets into the bullish aspect, and maybe gets too far fetched, uh, because again, it's hard to think so much higher in respect of to today, and you know, based on what we see in the past. But that's why I'm also going to discuss what's different today and what Carlix is actively doing today. Right, so again, in terms of those competitive advantages, one, they have better data. Right, you have underlying bank user purchase data. What better way is there to know what someone's going to buy than what they've already been buying and what they're actively buying today? This is much better data for advertising than what someone's reading or watching or liking or following. Like this is some of the best data. Also, some people lose sight of the fact they'll say, huh, loyalty programs already have this data. But let's say you're Dunkin' Donuts, right? And you have this loyal uh, loyalty customer. You think, oh wow, great, I have all this data. Well, what if that customer is actually spending way more money in the coffee uh, segment in, you know, at Starbucks and maybe Panera, maybe they're even getting coffee. You know, you can look at those things with Carlix because it's not just data in your store. Carlix has data 
everywhere so they can see your share of wallets. And actually, it's not just about converting a new customer to Dunkin' Donuts. It's saying, hey, this loyal customer is actually spending more elsewhere. It's actually cheaper for us to spend money on this customer because we're not trying to fully convert them to something they haven't tried. They already know we like, they, we know they like Dunkin'. So we can spend little or uh, less money and they're more familiar with us and they're actually a cheaper person to then start spending more with us. So it's a better return on our investment of just getting that loyal customer to spend even way more money with us, right? So that's just some, those are a couple aspects that I think people lose sight of. The other thing is probably the biggest thing, I've talked about this in the past, but I really wanna hit on this, is the certainty in measurement, the measurement quality with Cardlytics. Purchase data leads to much better measurement. Given is not only based on it, it, I mean, it's based on actual transactional data that's not only uh, online, but also in stores because you have the actual purchase data. Carlix can provide the true incrementality of spending due to the ads because they can be, they're able to do randomized controlled trials uh, based on that actual purchases, giving advertisers certainty in the results. This is unlike other advertising platforms where you can only estimate the attribution, which is not certain. This is one of Carlix's greatest advantages. And so I really wanna hit on this because I still get this all the time. And Carlix has even done webinars discussing this is people bring up the question, but how do I know that that customer in the bank uh, with that offer wouldn't have made a purchase anyway? Incrementality, okay? Carlix is one of the few platforms that can do those randomized control trials. The incrementality from the randomized control trials accounts for buyers that would have made the purchase anyway. So with a sufficiently large randomized sample, you have the test group and the control group that would be essentially identical. And Cardlytics does back tests to make sure that their buying habits are the same, looking at, uh, uh, previously. And so when you have a sufficiently large randomized sample between the, the, the control and the test group, you would assume then that they're also exposed to the same types of different advertisements, uh, with the only difference being in the test group that those are exposed to the offer, right? With the Cardlytics offer. The control group then, because they're not exposed to the offer, shows the level of buying and revenue associated with those who would have made the purchase anyways, right? So you now have this group. We can see, okay, they're not presented with the offer. How much are they buying? Why can Cardlytics do this? Because they have the purchase data. People, other people cannot do this. So then, therefore, Cardlytics, if the offers didn't work, we have this test group where they presented the offers. If it didn't work, the buying levels between the test group and the control group would be the same. There would be no incremental lift, right? So we can actually say, oh, if the buying level in that test group is the same as the control group who bought anyway, well, then we know Carlix actually didn't work. Where if there is incremental lift, we, we can know that that's 100% attributable to Cardlytics and their offer. This is why Cardlytics incremental return on ad spent I ROAS, not ROAS, incremental ROAS numbers are so impressive because they're incremental. This differs from less accurate and less certain measurements of trying to determine that attribution from using attribution models where it's all estimated like multi-touch attribution. Cardlytics instead knows with certainty how much is attributable to Cardlytics from being able to perform the testing and having this purchase data. And again, some people will see these numbers, they think they're almost ridiculous because they're so much higher and they're supposed to be certain. Well, that's why they introduced Nielsen to actually perform and verify these incremental numbers. So again, I just, I wanna make sure that's really clear because so many people will still be like, but how do we know they wouldn't have purchased anyway? And again, you don't even, you actually don't know that on other channels, but Carlix is the one channel you do know because you can say, oh, we have this group that would have purchased anyways. 
hey, how much is the test group with, with the only difference being the offer? How much are they spending? Oh, so we know that they are spending more than if they would have uh, than what they would have just spent anyways. So note, Cardlix doesn't just offer five to one ROAS, right? They they offer five to one incremental ROAS, where the revenue is incremental to the sales that would have occurred anyways. This differs from traditional ROAS used by other advertising companies that can include revenue and sales that would have incurred anyways, given they are not only including revenue uh, that is incremental or attributable to their ad spend. So the one, you know, an example that I'll use, I'm almost reversing everything that people say to me is like, imagine, you know, I just got an offer that Chase, uh, Chase Sapphire Reserve exclusive offer for $50 off uh, Allbirds, right? Okay, I get that offer. I'm, I'm thinking I'm gonna make that purchase. But then, you know, that same day, maybe I see a Facebook offer for Allbirds. And so that's where I complete my purchase. I click it, I complete it. Uh, therefore, the Facebook offer is not 100% attributable to the sale because I was going to purchase anyways. So unlike Cardlytics, Facebook doesn't have the purchase data of maybe someone that's very similar to see, well, how much are they spending to see what's the incremental lift? Instead, they have to estimate it, trying to go through uh, to estimate that incremental uh, ROAS. They're estimating it with something like multi-touch attribution. Where Cardlytics, it's true and known incrementality. It's more certain, right? This is a big difference. This is why you would expect more advertisers maxing this out as long as incremental revenue times the incremental margin is greater than the ad spend. So if it's five to one IROAS or incremental ROAS, if the incremental margin is greater than 20%, that means you have free money for every dollar you put in because you're getting a higher uh, incremental profit for every dollar you put in. This is why people talk about this as a broken slot machine, not just investors. I put some of these examples here of all about incremental ROAS just ROAS, incremental ROAS, or even a major US airline. It's like an arcade game where putting in a dollar gives you $5 back, <laughs> right? Like, like they're even talking about this like, like a broken game here, right? If this understanding increases, you would expect advertisers to max out their spending here first uh, until they no longer achieve incremental profit over their ad spend. You can also think about this from the perspective of advertisers should spend here first where the returns are, uh, and results are more certain and they're actually widening due to you know the issues with cookies as well as IDFA. Uh, and additionally, they should be willing to spend more. Why? Think about it in terms of investing. You should be, you're usually willing to spend more or conversely earn a lower return if it's risk-free or if it's more certain. The other aspect is solicited ads. People kind of lose sight of, they think, well, how much time does someone spend in their bank app anyways? The reason that's a metric used in other platforms is because they're not there for the advertisement, right? You need long use times and in, in openings because you need to slip an unsolicited ad or try to present them with, you know, something that they can't, like an unskippable ad because they're not there for that. They're not wanting to look at that advertisement. How many times are you on TV? You're not looking at that advertisement. You're on the radio. You want to change the channel. You're on YouTube. You skip the channel. You see one on Facebook, you go past it, right? You're not there for that. So you're not even looking at it. So you need a lot amount of a long time hoping that on it, you, you're able to get somebody, right? Cardlytics, that's not the case. You're choosing. It's solicited to look at the ads. How much time do you need to go and look at a hundred ads in five seconds if you're actively looking at them? Not much time, right? Just seconds. All right. Try to keep going this at a quick pace. So how does Cardlytics get there? What's different? What's different today? Biggest difference <laughs> Why I think Carlos is going to get there is simply the new CEO, uh, Karim Temzamani. Uh, Karim was just hired as the new CEO in September of 2022, and he's probably the most important change. So not only does he have the right background working at Google and Stripe, but I think he understands what's currently wrong with Carlix and how to fix it. 
I very much appreciate you know his transparency and honesty of not trying to hide what's wrong. He's been addressing it, saying, hey, these are the issues that we have, and this is what we're going to do to fix it. Biggest thing, there was no automation pretty much in, in the entire business. In terms of his experience and ability to execute, uh, he was in charge of Global Mobile at Google, where he took it from a non-existent business to $10 billion in two and a half years. That is a quote from him in 2020. For context, with those valuation and ARPU scenarios of $10 and $33, uh, that leads to about $1.8 billion and $6.1 billion of revenue, respectively. So <laughs> let's say that was achieved in 10 years. That's still not even to the scale of what he did in two and a half years at Google. And you might be able to say, oh, well, he was able to leverage Google for that division. Well, Cardlytics can also leverage uh, Cardlytics and its existing infrastructure, data, uh, technology, partnerships, acquisitions. And that's actually one of the first statements Krim actually even mentioned. He said, hey, I look forward to leveraging the strong foundation that has been developed. This is why I think in some, in some aspects, you know, I talk about the level of ARPU that needs to be able to achieve to earn some attractive returns from today is not that much and it's something that's already been accomplished essentially in the business so that increases the odds and you have now a new ceo who's already done this so that increases the odds i like those aspects right and we can look at other businesses who have achieved high levels of, of average revenue per users where carlix has competitive advantages over them so that increases the odds i like those things of, of thinking about it so in terms of the foundation again the first part of the business was building these bank relationships it took up until today to finally get chase and wells fargo and get to 184 million maus the previous management you know used to work at capital one lynn and scott and so what they have accomplished you know it wouldn't be possible without them and it was needed right no one else has been able to do this at this scale I mean, you're literally talking about, I mean, imagine me going up to a bank and say, hey, can I have access to your purchase data and put advertisements in your channel? Like, that's like, that's why there's such large barriers to entry and it took a while. I mean, they even mentioned it took like 10 years to gain Chase's trust. Trust is not something easily attainable, right? And so now the foundation is you have, you know, we're approaching 200 million MAUs. This is a huge foundation of leverage. The way I've thought about this is I saw this example not too long ago. I was going over all over Twitter was uh, Slack versus Microsoft Teams. Microsoft Teams, the advantage they had is they already had all these people using Microsoft, right? Microsoft Office. So it's very simple to then start leveraging all that huge distribution network to be able to put Microsoft Teams out and people start using it, right? <laughs> it, is, it shows the power of it. And that's where Carlix is today, where you have this large, significant distribution base where if you can start giving the right products like the new user interface, uh, product level offers, new offer constructs, I see people start redeeming some of these offers. And I do want to say though, this also speaks to the power of the platform, uh, how attractive it is in terms of reach, its targeting, its measurement ability, is even though the focus was more on getting these users first and foremost, Cardlix from 2015 to 2022 was still increasing revenue at 21%, right? And then if you actually adjust that uh, for 2022, if you remove the, the large advertiser that dropped in the channel, it was 30% growth. You get to even almost 24% compounded. Again, again, this is with no automation. It was hard to buy from Cardlytics. No product level offers. Uh, monetization was not optimized. And you technically, and in some ways, didn't even have uh, the leadership that had that more tech-oriented or ad tech to know how to monetize it, right? And now you do, you have that change. So what is gonna to lead to increasing levels of ARPU? Uh, just kind of quickly going over some of this. One is the new ad server. You know, this was something, um, the first set of what I'm gonna discuss are things that have been in progress, uh, but not have been implemented to impact financials yet. And that are going too soon. Because we just learned at third quarter that 50% of the MAUs are in the new ad server, where the new ad server allows the new user interface. So you're gonna have much richer, richer uh, uh, imagery, 
categorization to be able to find offers. This also allows for images within the offers. Uh, you know, US Bank is already on the new ad server. They have images within their offers. They were saying that it was getting up to like 5X the amount of clickout rates, right? Actually clicking a link to go to the external website. The way to think about this is, let's say it's a, you know, some jewelry company you've never heard of, but you don't even know it's a jewelry company, right? It says the name of the company and you click on it and you just see this, like kind of like this Lowe's offer here, just a ton of text. You might not read it. You might just click back out, right? Look at the other offers. But if you see a picture, you know, oh, they have that kind of jewelry. Like, oh, that's what I'm interested in. I'm going to click out. A picture's worth a thousand words. Uh, the new ad server also op opens up more notifications as well as time of day offers. McDonald's, look at Carlos is, uh, you know, Taco Bell is a bridge customer. McDonald's has been placing offers on Carlos. McDonald's has actually explicitly uh, said that they want to do time of day offers. So we can start seeing that. Uh, Kareem has also mentioned the new uh, offer constructs. He gave the example of United Airlines where the more you spent, the more you saved. Dosh has been doing this as well in uh, within Dosh. Panera has been doing this in Dosh. So I would expect to see that also in the bank soon because Dosh has been used uh, as a way to start testing things. You also have the new ads marketplace that should allow for real-time adjustments based on inventory and even possibly auction-based pricing. We know this is important because even despite the layoffs, uh, there's still active positions opening uh, open for the new ads marketplace. Additionally, there's uh, uh, positions open for machine learning, which should improve targeting. Uh, Krim has also mentioned it providing more engagement metrics so we can know earlier on, hey, how is this working with the new ad server so we can extrapolate that out, such as when we get to 100% on the new ad server. And then finally, the new ad server unlocks product level offers as well as uh, different budgets like category level budgets. So that's another thing. Bridge, the Cartelytics acquire Bridge to be able to start doing these product level offers and it unlocks these new budgets uh, such as at the category level and product level offers. You also, the way I thought about this is there's could be quick impact. So Cartelix finally got to 50% of MAUs on the new ad server to be able to start doing these things. Well, you'll have existing bridge clients that can start placing offers such as Dollar General. Uh, these are my guesses. I, I don't know for certain, but I have high reason to believe based on what I've been seeing, especially on LinkedIn, uh, like Dollar General, Regal Theaters, Taco Bell, that they can start placing advertisements and even large clients. So Cartelix mentioned that there was a new bridge client that was a large uh, home improvement store, which I'm guessing based on all these LinkedIn, uh, there's bridge employees liking Lowe's uh, posts on LinkedIn. So I'm thinking it's Lowe's, which would be huge, right? Again, you didn't have these category level budgets before uh, because Cartelix was only seeing the total statement. They saw, oh, someone bought at Lowe's, but they don't know what department or what product. Well, now you could. And so now these advertisers where the budgets are at the category level and the product level, uh, they could start advertising. Advertising. If you have these existing clients on Bridge, well, they could start doing this. And so I think, you know, now that you got 50% of the MAUs on the new ad server, uh, you could start, once they get on the new UI, they could start doing this. You also have existing Carlyx customers that, hey, if they become a bridge client, uh, they can start placing product level offers. But you also have these existing advertising agencies like Horizon Media, VaynerMedia, uh, who have CPGs and brands that are part of their clients that are using Carlytics, but you've had these CPGs and brands who haven't been able to place offers yet and start advertising the channel that this could open that up. I also think bridge and product level offers offer higher cash back, which is much more attractive. One example, I mean, this wasn't actually even a bridge offer, but it kind of highlights it, even though Panera is a bridge client, is that it was a 50% back. The reason why, you know, usually Panera is like 10% back. Why could they do 50%? Because there's a better margin on coffee. 
right? So they could have this higher offer, which is more cash back for me, so it's more attractive, so I'm more likely to redeem it. And also, these product level offers become more relevant. And so one thing that is even a really way to explain why product level can become more relevant, let's say I get a 10% off a Panera offer. I like coffee. I get 10% off Panera. I might not know that they sell coffee, but Panera can say, okay, He's, uh, this, this customer is not buying coffee from us, but we can see based on Cardlytics who has data outside of Panera that he actually in the category of coffee is spending a lot of money on coffee. So let's present him an offer. And it's not just going to be 10% off Panera. It's going to be 50% off coffee. So it's now higher percent cash back and it's more relevant to me. And I didn't even know about that. They sold coffee before and it's better for them because they have better margins and it's a win-win for everybody, including the banks, more money spent, uh, more engagement. And then also bridge can help with, uh, attribution. Again, it gives insights into their own data. It's not the bank's data anymore. As well as, let's say you're doing one of these specific offers on one specific SKU, and let alone if you did it at a specific location, right? If you were only targeting people in a certain area, and you saw a spike in that, at, at what point will you say, yeah, what, what that that offer would have uh, or, or that purchase would have happened anyways? At some point, you can't deny it, right? And like already you have the the data, the incrementality. Now you're getting your own data bill to do the own testing. But at some point, you're going to see these crazy uh, numbers that start happening, especially on specific SKUs that you can't deny it. Other things of why we're going to see increasing levels of ARPU is. Going into 2023, Carly's pretty much said that this was on an annual basis, one of the largest pipelines they've had, right? So that should help. Even if, that, if, even if it's at reduced spending levels, it's all incremental that you're adding these new advertisers. Also, increases in the understanding of the incrementality, what I discussed with that incremental ROAS aspect. Carlix has been doing uh, more webinars on this. And I think from, you know, as they, if Carlix can start improving, you know, some of the data they're sharing, the sales team, the communication, this will increase and lead to higher levels of ad spend. So what's also different? So those are things that have been kind of already ongoing in the past. What's new? Again, I'm gonna go through this maybe a little faster, uh, but this was from Karim discussing at the third quarter earnings, as well as the December 7th conference. He mentioned optimizing monetization. Uh, I can only speculate what some of that could be. One is charging for engagement. Right now you only charge, there's two different pricing models uh, with cost per serve sale and cost per redemption, but those both rely on someone actually making a purchase. Well, what about the people that purchase on a different car? What about people who purchase in cash? What about people who make the purchase outside the campaign window? But where Cardlytics, you know, served an offer and maybe they engaged with the offer. Maybe they clicked on the link to go to the external website. And so that contributed. Maybe Cardlytics should get charged for that. Uh, increasing pricing, maybe five to one incremental ROAS is way too much. I mean, people I've seen where they, they've shared what their estimated uh, incremental ROAS is like on Facebook, and it's at much lower levels. And where Carlytics isn't estimated, it's known. So you would say it should at least be at those levels. So maybe that's four, maybe that's three, which leads to much higher uh, levels of ad spend. Uh, you might get some natural, this happened naturally with the auction-based pricing on the new uh, marketplace, but I, I don't know for sure. Crib has also mentioned data analytics. Maybe there's more they can do there um, in terms of charging for that or selling to others. And, and maybe if they, even though it's the bank's data, maybe they do it in aggregated form, uh, providing like, you know, some of their, the summaries and, and the analytics that they're seeing. And if they charge for it, maybe they, they give the banks a rev share. You could also expand this to maybe more instead of a, uh, ad spend versus that next purchase, ROAS, return on that ad spend. Maybe you expand that to a, on LTV to CAC basis. Uh, you know, Krim mentioned the, you know, charging based on the idiosyncrasies of the verticals. And it's, 
And so one way I thought about this is maybe more related to subscriptions where it's like Cardlytics, maybe they got someone to buy a subscription and now they're paying every single month and Cardlytics can see that. They have the purchase data to see that those person people are spending every single month. Now you could have a royalty aspect or really maybe you just expand the window, uh, the campaign window, like past the 45 days of which they have to pay. I don't know if that could quite work, but it'd be quite interesting. The other thing is making it easier for advertisers to buy from Cardlytics. Uh, you know, Krim has mentioned that it should take minutes, where rather today it's taking weeks to build and book campaigns. That means there's extreme friction in terms of someone wanting to buy from Cardlytics. So that's something of introducing more automation. He said, uh, he also mentioned, one thing I liked is he, he took kind of accountability in terms of saying, hey, you know, there was the decision by previous management to hold off on the self-service because they were saying, let's take away some of these tech employees and put them on the new ad server, which I think was the correct decision because self-service for SMBs only worked <laughs> where there was the new ad server right and so it's like well we should focus on the new ad server first but Krimis said hey i'm still going to put this on hold made it his decision took accountability and said there's still risk related to smbs you might put an smb offer and then they're out of business that's not a good look right banks aren't happy users aren't happy and he said there's more there's better opportunities elsewhere larger opportunities elsewhere where the time should be spent such as making it easier for carlix for users to buy or advertisers to buy from carlytics uh, and he also said he wants to open up multiple pricing models and multiple models to make it, again, easier to buy from Carlytics. Additionally, one thing, and I've heard this from other advertisers, is he wants to shorten the campaign windows. Right now, because of the incrementality models, it's a 45-day uh, campaign uh, window. And many of the offers you'll see is about 45 days. He wants to shorten this down to daily. And part of this, too, is the banks. The banks have expressed interest in having daily campaigns i think this will have a second benefit not only making banks happy but for advertisers if you have shorter campaigns you can do quicker testing to be able to do a new campaign to optimize it much quicker you're not waiting for 45 days to determine how it's doing to optimize again decreasing friction increasing the amount of information to clients faster feedback loops this could lead to much higher levels of arpu uh, Kareem has also mentioned building better relations with the banks, obsessing over these bank relationships. One, what could what could that mean? What could happen? Well, one is the banks might give uh, Cardlytics more priority. We've already heard back in the second, uh, the first quarter of this year, that one bank improved the visibility of the offer section, and it doubled. It led to twice as many mobile activations. That's huge. I actually heard from someone saying that it actually like crashed, their, crashed their servers because it, it led to so many more people seeing the offers. So again, build better relationships with the banks, make this more valuable to them. They might improve that visibility. Uh, additionally, it might lead to uh, the banks taking part of their rev share and boosting the offers. We've seen this, I think, with Chase, with some of their, their Chase Sapphire Reserve exclusive offers, possibly even their more just generic, that's happened recently. Uh, there was a Kohl's offer that was only Chase exclusive that was much higher cash back that many people I used multiple times because it was so good 20 percent back up to 20 dollars um and it, it was you know i even saw i shared it on twitter where people were talking about online how good of an offer it was but i think it wasn't necessarily kohl's i think it was the bank chase leaning into the program to make the offer even better uh additionally and again higher percent of cash back makes users more excited more likely to use it increases word of mouth they might even see other offers they use so they, they use those as well as an indirect benefit uh increasing the relationship with the banks might lead to faster rollouts of new features such as the new ui uh crim also mentioned working with uh with retail media networks for bridge uh Bridge employees have been liking Walmart Connect, which is their retail media network, and Krim has been mentioning Walmart. And uh, the December 7th conference, I think he even mentioned it twice as an example. Not that Carlix has them, and so it's like, 
the bridge sign Walmart. Like, <laughs> I mean, so I'll talk, I'll touch on that maybe a little bit if I remember. Uh, and finally, just increasing the Carlix brand, how people, the place, uh, you know, increase Carlix place in an advertiser's mind, how it's thought of uh, would lead to people thinking about it more and spending more money. And so I do quick, I've kind of already touched on this on the progression, but if you're interested of how Carlix could actually get there, what each step could contribute, maybe that there would be a small equity raise. If there is to try to get more talent to do this faster, my hope is Krim waits until they actually do some of what they can already do today get ARPU up maybe above $3, which leads to some cash flow, which would lead to a high, you know, higher value, you know, high, more cash flow, higher valuation, which would lead to less dilution. And I've heard that he is actually thought about that. And so, but he's also been conscious about dilution, which I think is a, a important that I, I really like the fact that, you know, upon investing, he'll have, I think a 1.3 million shares, which is actually quite significant. Um, you know, you start doing the math with some of these valuation scenarios, that's too far off. If you start doing the math, he could do quite well. So I think he cares, right? And I think he doesn't want to get diluted. So I think he is conscious about this. So what we didn't discuss, you know, Carlix is in talk with other, you know, those valuation scenarios was, was with only 184 million MAUs. Carlix is currently in talks with multiple top 20 banks today. Right, so that could lead to a significant impact. You know, one thing I do want to touch on: people will talk about what about what about the risk of banks doing this in house? We already know banks can do this in house. American Express has been doing it for like what ten years, right? But in the long run, my thought is is banks won't do this in house because of Carlos can provide significantly higher engagement, more card spent, less attrition because they're able to provide you know with this aggregated reach by you by you know aggregating all the banks reach to provide a value value better value proposition for the advertisers at least to better adver uh, advertisements and offers for users so users are being are engaging more they're spending more they're not leaving the bank as much they're spending more time in the app so there's better cross selling abilities and so because the value proposition becomes so much better than what you could do on your own i think more banks will continue using carlos like we're seeing and why multiple top 20 banks are still interested there's other, that's only in the United States. Krim even mentioned, hey, let's look internationally. You know, he at Stripe was the head of global partnerships. At Google, he was the head of Asian Pacific region. I mean, he has, you know, a more international background, both at Google and Stripe and even uh, previously. And he has specifically mentioned even the December 2nd uh, conference, how he's looking to improve automation to get onboarding of a bank that's previously took uh, six to nine months, get that down to a week or two. <laughs> and he's also mentioned again she's kind of showing how his level of thinking here he said quote uh and it would only take a couple of people servicing the bank at the publisher level and then hire a small sales team that can sell content and then be profitable straight away internationally rather than having a very heavy cost structure again you're almost you have this very little incremental cost of adding these large banks which will lead to a significantly larger scale. And so you have much higher cash flow generation possibilities here. Again, coming from some of this more automation. I also have been ignoring for those valuation scenarios uh, of, of revenue share decreasing and gross profit margins increasing. Uh, it was mentioned in the past that the introduction of bridge should lead to higher gross profit levels. This isn't just because of bridge revenue that has higher gross profit, but instead, if you look at the, I put a, a link to the footnotes if you're interested that the in so the way that fi share is calculated is it's the fi's relative contribution of data to the delivery of the offer so if you introduce new data their relative contribution decreases which should decrease the rev share i don't know if that'll happen carlix has kind of mentioned that in the past but that could have a significant impact and finally 
We still have all the neobanks. You know, Credit Karma was signed with 120 million U.S. Uh, users as of December 20th. And you have Venmo with 80 million plus uh, users. I mean, ad agencies have spoken about how they liked using Fig because you could advertise the neobanks like Acorns where there's different uh, users and there's different targeting abilities with different push notifications that are possible because it's outside the banks. And so I think Card Lakes, if they can wrap that into the total distribution network to be able to do advertisements more easily, like if I go on and advertise on a different platform, it'll say, hey, do you want to you can advertise here where you came from, but you can also advertise in these other platforms. I think Card Lakes should introduce that. That's all great. We talked about the competitive advantages versus other advertisers, but what about the about if someone tried to compete in this card linked offer space? What are com the competitive advantages of Carlix? They have higher barriers to entry in terms of trust and social proof, which I kind of talked about. You also have the scale advantages, high switching costs, and a growing customer value proposition. I put in the footnotes even more information. I go into depth on those, so if you're interested, check it out. I've talked about these in that last one of the last write ups around uh, the similarities to a hundred matter where now the, the possibility of a hunter bagger has increased because the stock price is lower. And again, I'll talk about, right? I guess right now, then why this large stock price decline, right? This is all great. This is dandy. But why are we, have we went from $160 to as low as $3.50 for about a 98% decline? Well, the thing is over the last two years, it's been like two years where there's just been this, this fear going on, right? Um, well, I, that's where, yes, I, I mean, honestly, we're about a year and a, a year and a half now, at least a year and a half, if not two years, because the first thing was B of A uh, in, in the fear that B of A was testing fig for local offers. So people thought uh, that B of A was not going to renew Carlytics. But come to find out by July 22nd, again, it was delayed, which is part of the, why I got why people were fearful. Excuse me is it took until July 2022, so almost a year later, then finally uh, B of A renewed with Carlytics. So that fear is gone. But the stock price didn't rebound after that. Why is that? Because a week or two uh, prior, Chase acquired Fig. And then people were worried, oh, Chase is going to leave the platform then. So then people got fearful about that. But now we know, hey, all these months later, after after that acquisition, Chase is still using Carlytics. If you click on a Chase offer uh, and, and you go to the external website, it will say in the URL that it's Cartlytics, that they're sending them there. So that's how you know, even though it's still the same platform, if you still were questioning that, you can see today that it's still using Cartlytics. But we also know that as of uh, third quarter earnings, 50% of the MAUs are on the new ad server, where Cartlytics has mentioned that Chase was the one to be that was scheduled for the fourth quarter. You have that announcement, <laughs> and then that Chase was the easiest way to get there. So under every circumstance and every information we know, it's Chase that's the one that's on the new ad server. And so... And again, Chase even said, nothing has changed with the relationship. Fig was more for SMBs. So to me, this fear is in the past. But then if people believe that, which I think, you know, people I've talked to, people believe that, well, then why, again, has the stock continued to decline, right? Well, then that leads us to the next fear, which is the bridge earnouts. Uh, and so this is why I think the story in the stock price has been one of compounded and overweighted fears. You have these fears and just as it gets resolved, a new fear comes out, right? Like again, B, the B of A renewal, uh, happened like a week or two after the chase fear. And then now as, as we learned about the chase, you know, the chase, uh, update or the, you know, the 50% of the MAUs on the new ad server and chase was scheduled to be that bank in the fourth quarter. And then we heard the, that update. Well, then we were, we're now worried about the bridge announced Cause at the third quarter, we learned about the bridge announced. And so, uh, and the dispute. So again, I'll, let me, I'm going to go over this in a little bit more detail because this is where I try to put as much information as possible, even more in the footnotes, because I know it only takes one misconception or one misinformation for someone to be, become worried. So the bridge earned out the expected payment. So again, the bridge earned, so 
uh, Cardlytics acquired Bridge for the product level offers, paid $350 million, but there was ter- two anniversary earnout payments. The first one was is expected to be $126 million in total with $43.5 million in cash. And then and the rest will be stock. And the second one is expected to be sixty-five or sixty-nine million total with twenty-four million in cash. So first, the bridge earnout misconceptions. I believe a portion of the continued depressed stock price is that there's still many misconceptions related to these bridge earnout payments. Based on my conversations with others, management comments to investors, but even after invest uh, after third quarter earnings, uh, as well as my interpretations of reading the merger agreement. Uh, these are some of the biggest misconceptions or some of the first ones that I see. So the first is that the first earnouts dilution. So again, when you calculate the stock price, that is going to be for this, uh, the, the, the other 70%, that'll be stock for this first one. Uh, the dilution is not based on today's stock price. It's locked in. The first anniversary is based on the volume weighted average price for that last month, uh, which led to $40 and 15 cents. Therefore, that remaining payment, if you take $126 or 126 million minus 43 million, you're, uh, that additional 82 million that's gonna be stock, if you divide that by $40 per share, $40.15, you're left with about $2 million, uh, $2.06 million additional shares, which if you go to the third quarter 10, uh, 10Q, they actually specify about 2.06 million shares that they expect to issue for that first payment. So again, what people get hung up on is they look at today's stock price and like, oh, it's going to lead to a lot of dilution with that first payment. But again, it's already locked in at $40. And then additionally, the dispute, there's a, so Bridge is challenging this first earnout of $126 million. And so the dispute, the benefit is it's on the first payment, right? Or on that first earnout where the, the stock price is 10 times higher at $40, which will lead to less dilution if uh uh, for that, that if there, if if Bridge wins that dispute, right, you're able to you're able to use the forty dollars on that payment, so it leads to less dilution there. So that's good. That's a be- that's a that's a very strong benefit. The next misconception, again, one that I originally had because I didn't know this, was that the ti- the total dilution for both earnouts is is nineteen point nine percent. Not 19.9% each and not unlimited, right? This is, again, I, I put the language in the merger agreement here. And again, I received confirmation that it was for both. Because you could read this maybe both ways uh, in the merger agreement if it's on on both separately, so 40% total. But Cardlick specified, no, we didn't want 40%. We wanted it to be 20% total. And so therefore, because you have a cap, you can't have a death spiral impact where the lower the stock price, the more dilution. It gets capped out. Yes, 19.9% is still a lot, but the upside potential of this business would offset most of that dilution combined with the future free cash flow of the business to be able to buy back shares. Uh, but dilution may not even come close to this, right? And I'm going to touch on this. If the cap was reached, the rest would have to be you know, paid in cash. But as I will discuss, and as I'll show them below, Carlytics has enough liquidity to choose not not to be forced to to choose to pay 100% cash for that second earnout leading to no dilution following the first earnout where again the first earnout's based on this higher stock price with pretty minimal dilution so given Karim uh, will upon investing have 1.3 million shares 
I think he is at least conscious of the dilution and aligned with shareholders. And I think he might even, not only will Carlos be in a position to do this, I think he might even consider and might do this where he pays 100% cash or using like the line of credit, which I'll discuss, to pay for the second earn now 100% cash so there's no further dilution. And Carlos can do this. They have enough liquidity, which I'll discuss. The other misconception is that the second earnout, people are worried, oh, what if the second earnout's so large? And then there's, you know, this, <laughs> this aspect of, well, then the stock price is so low and then they'll have to use all cash. What people lose sight of. Again, something I will admit, I did not know upon first learning about this. And that's why I think it's, you know, I can see where people don't realize it because I didn't realize it, is the second earnout is the incremental revenue off the existing first anniversary customers. Meaning, it's not in like Carlos, like if, if Carlos or, or sorry, Bridge kept scaling revenue in the same pace, it wouldn't matter. Like if they start signing all these new, uh, these new Bridge clients in the second year, it doesn't matter because they're not second anniversary clients. They had to be there for the first anniversary. So that's why you know before I was a little worried. I'm like, oh my gosh, what if they sign Walmart? I don't know if they're the, the 25 million dollar contract or not. Uh, that might be the home improvement store. I don't know. Uh, but it, again, I got a little fearful if they start signing these huge clients, uh, these huge maybe a Target, a Kroger, whoever it may be, that it would lead to significantly higher average, uh, you know, uh, annual reoccurring revenue (ARR) that the second earnout would be so much larger. But that can't be because it's only based on second anniversary customers. This also explains why Carlix was able to provide a total expected payment of 69 million and 24 million cash, given it's more of a function of renewal rates on existing customers. Therefore, there's no risk related to previous growth continuing or a very large partner being signed. Because again, I was wondering like, how are they estimating this? Because you don't know who's gonna be signed and but that's why, because it doesn't matter if they sign somebody new. It's based on the second anniversary customers. They had to be there at the first anniversary, and then it's their incremental revenue. So again, there, there's multiple misconceptions and wrong things being assumed, which makes sense. I did the same thing, uh, but upon for you know talking to management, looking at the merger agreement, which is you know quite in depth, you can see you know that you can see where people are missing some of the points here. And again, I'm going to be putting this all into numbers here shortly. But that doesn't, it doesn't stop there. It's not even just about the bridge earnout misconceptions. There's also liquidity uh, misconceptions. So I did put the liquidity resource that Carlix reported as of the third quarter. I mean, the first thing is the line of credit. Uh, Carlix has an unused line of credit uh, that on the third quarter call, Andy Christensen said, said it was 50 million of unused capacity, which it was until April of 2022 when it was increased to 60 million with an option to increase to 75 million. So there's even more liquidity than those uh, would realize if they just listened to the call and they're not looking at, you know, talking to Carlix afterwards or not looking at uh, the 10Q. Again, I think that was just a mistake because again, Carlix did only have 50 million of unused capacity, but then they just increased it this year. Some though, don't even know that this line of, of credit exists. I know that from talking to others, they only look at the cash and they only look at the balance sheet. And because it's not used, they don't see the cash on the balance sheet. And so they assume, oh, they just had the cash. Others have feared, and again, this was something I was even fearful of once I heard about this, was that Carlix would lose this line of credit from not meeting growth covenants that are specified in this uh, on this line of cre uh, line of credit. And if you're heading into this bad macro environment, you could you might not hit those growth uh, growth uh, rates that you need for to to be able to use this line of credit. So you could lose this, right? That's a pretty rational fear. That's why this is another big thing. After the call, you know. 
Krim has, or you know, Cardlick specifically said that they're actively in discussions with this this line of the bank that's uh, providing this line of credit. They've had this line of credit for a while. It's a, one of the longest lasting, uh, you know, partnerships that Cardlick has had. I think to this bank. Cardlix is one of their biggest customers, so they want to maintain this relationship. And so they're actively in discussions of work. And I, it could be done, and they just haven't even announced it yet. It might wait until the next earnings. Uh, but they're working with them to amend this line of credit or have a new line of credit that's a function of EBITDA instead to get rid of the growth covenant and so that this line of credit would be available under a bad scenario. That means the, the probability of this line of credit uh, being you know, available for Cardlix to use has increased dramatically. That was huge news once I heard about that. In terms of accounts receivable, again, Carlos has 97 million on their balance sheet. This could be securitized or factored to receive a high portion of that in cash today. Again, this is money that they're set to receive. Uh, one thing to note: 13% of this is the top five average, or the top five advertisers make up 13%. So you really wouldn't even need to securitize or factor it. Maybe you could just, I mean, again, if they're the top five marketers on carlytics i'm sure you know they're good for their money you could probably work something out to get that sooner but you could always securitize and factor and get a portion of that today at a lower amount uh but again even if, what i'll use i'll i guess i'll talk about it right here so i actually go in depth now and do the actual liquidity calculations because i, I think part of the fear i mean especially with the bridge dispute is most people just don't do this they don't actually put pen to paper um and actually do the numbers here and they just assume well worst case is bankruptcy but but why again when i see that i've seen it multiple times every time i ask them well what's your numbers like how are you getting there well you know like you know some you know some people will have you know they'll bring up some things but you know usually it goes back to they've had these misconceptions Right, like, well, I don't know how they're going to pay it if, if the you know the second year ARR is dramatically higher from signing new clients. Well, that doesn't matter. Well, what about the dil the dilution they have to pay? You know, it, it's a, or the which which uh, stock price is being used. Like all these misconceptions lead to that thought, and so that's why, again, that's why I was on an individual basis trying to clear it up, and now I'm trying to just do this for everyone and try to include as much information possible in case you have a concern. Again, so in terms of the liquidity calculation, the way I did this, again, I'm just going to go over this quickly, and then I go in more in depth, and then actually in the footnotes, let me just show you real quick, um, I go more in depth. I So the way I've done this is essentially I said, okay, the, the main events are the first bridge earnout, the second bridge earnout, um, and the converts, right? Those are the three, the, 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 the 2025 uh, convertible senior notes. Those are the three events, but I wanted to project multiple. I go through and I do multiple valuations or, or, or scenarios under one that's best estimate, what I think is going to happen, a more conservative one, which is in the body, which we're going to discuss, as well as a most conservative. I even go more conservative to say, hey, how would Cardlytics even handle this? And again, I provide all my detailed numbers. I go through these multiple progressions. I talk about what could happen. And then I even discuss um, all the assumptions that I use. And again, like <laughs> I even, and I'll discuss, I think this in the body of, of uh, uh, a little bit more where even if I'm wrong, there's things that Cardlytics can do to be okay here, which gives me even more comfort. Um, but again, this is why this takes so long is I, I go in depth and I'm thinking about like yesterday, I've had this done, but I was thinking about things more. I want to make sure my numbers are okay. So going back at a high level of liquidity, if we take the cash, we take the line of credit, which I assume is going to be $10 million lower at that $50 million le uh, level, because I think that if they do these new covenants, that it will be a function of EBITDA, not growth. They might have a lower level, so I assume $50 million instead of the $60 million, let alone $75 million that Carlos had available to. And then I assume 75% could be factored or securitized of the accounts receivable. 
that leaves you with $260 million of starting liquidity. Then you have free cash flow burn in the fourth quarter, which I use the low end of guidance at $80 million of revenue. And again, I have the assumptions, I have the details if you wanna know how I get to negative 14 or almost negative 15 million of free cash flow burn. And then for the first half of 2023, again, I'm trying to put this in perspective for the earnouts. For the first half of 2023, I assume a bad macro environment, essentially that they'll have almost a negative 27% decline in revenue year over year, but there's gonna be one growth offset, which I think is conservative because there are so many different things, the, the largest pipeline, uh, optimizing monetization, new pricing models, uh, and make it easier to buy from Carlytics, the new ad server and product level offers. There's so many things to do. I said, hey, let's say they can do one to get to no growth in 2023 right which is less than because carlytics still thinks because of all these things that they can do these new offer constructs the new ads or product level offers they think hey we should get actually growth in 2023 so i think again i do actually if you're interested in that 27 percent revenue decline scenario that's my most conservative scenario that i put in the appendix in the footnotes below so this leads to a 36 million dollar cash flow burn which means then that carlix has 210 million dollars of total liquidity for both of the cash components of the bridge earnouts so i assume for the cash they'll have uh, 43 million dollars for the first bridge earnout, and then i handle the dispute second so then you have so you have 43 for the first one and then i assume that they pay 100 cash for that second earnout of 69 million dollars that leaves 97 million of liquidity available uh, of cash for the dispute then I calculate, and I'll discuss this in depth, I conservatively estimate what the dispute could be uh, based on what we know and the information we have, and I get about 19 or almost 20 million, which is significant, of cash, but then Carly still has, you know, after the free cash flow burn, after the bridge earnouts, after the dispute, $77 million of liquidity. You don't even need the accounts receivable then, and they're still fine right? You still have all these growth aspects that Carlos could achieve. You could still add more banks. You could do so much here. You could increase pricing, optimize. Uh, there's so much that <laughs> Carlytics is fine, right? And again, you might look at this and you might right away say, that's that's not conservative enough. What if this happens? What about this? I, I do even a more conservative valuation scenario in the appendix. But again, I don't even, I think this is even too conservative. But again, this shows Carlytics has enough liquidity to handle the cash flow burden under a worsening macro environment with only one growth offset, which I think is too conservative to assume. I think both, you know, they have enough liquidity to handle both bridge earnouts with 100% cash for the second earnout, and even extra cash for the bridge dispute that I believe is conservatively calculated. And Carlix wouldn't even need the accounts receivable under this scenario. Then why do so many worry, right? Beyond the misconceptions that I explained below, because again, some people might not come up with these numbers because they're not using the right information. I believe the next bigger reason is people don't spend the time to actually do, like project this out. And they, and specifically, they don't try to estimate the dispute number. So they just say, okay, well, what's the worst case for a dispute? Oh, it'd be something extremely high. So the worst case is bankruptcy, right? <laughs> like, and so I think, again, I go, we've already kind of discussed all the numbers I've used. If you're interested, uh, I, I put some more detail here and even more detail in the appendix. But again, why are people, like if you assume the $97 million is accurate, I guess this is what I discussed. So the biggest thing is we have $97 million before, you know, this is under a worse macro environment, uh, only one growth offset, 100% of the second bridge run out in cash, paying for the fridge, uh, the first bridge run out as well. And so this is plenty of liquidity to handle the dispute 
and this is assuming Bridge wins the dispute. You know, there's a very real chance that Carlyx wins, and then, oh, Carlyx still has a ton of liquidity left over. But that leads us to the Bridge dispute. What is the Bridge dispute? We learned at the third quarter that, you know, Bridge is disputing uh, the first earnout payment. So it hasn't even been paid yet. And so the reason why we didn't know about this until the third quarter was that the dispute did not form, it was not formally a dispute and then a dispute until the third quarter. That was specified in the third quarter 10Q. But given Carlyx has enough liquidity for the, the bridge earnouts, then the outstand, as well as a, a worsening macro environment, then the outstanding question and concern is the bridge dispute. Because you could say, okay, I get it. I, I get it, Austin. I believe your $97 million that's left for uh, the dispute. But the risk would be, well, that's how much liquidity you have. What if it's actually more than that? Right, like that's the outstanding question because Cardlix has not provided any information regarding the dispute, what the what the magnitude could be, what the what the impact could be at all. So, what's the worst case scenario? That it's billions of dollars and it leads to way too high of cash. Cardlix only has ninety seven million dollars available for it. Uh, again, under conservative scenarios, uh, but. They, you know, this would mean okay if the bridge dispute leads to more than 97 million uh, for the cash component. Well, then Carlix fails, right? And so I think most, even if like you say, there's a 95% chance that Carlix either wins or is able to afford the bridge dispute. Most look at that 5% and they treat it as 100%. And they say, yep, Carlix is not is uninvestable. That possibility, even if it's super small. I don't want to take that risk, right? I think part of that's given how recent it is, kind of like, you know, we had those historical fears of B of A and Chase, uh, as well as, you know, the unknown aspect. People try to say, well, because I just don't know, I'm not even going to estimate it. I'm not even going to look at this, un uninvestable. So again, however, I think, you know, I believe what most don't do is they don't try to estimate what the potential magnitude is. So let's start with a very conservative scenario by assuming extremely higher than expected first bridge earnout. The first benefit is it's on the first uh, that, you know, again, I think people overlook this aspect or again, they're not even thinking about it is the first benefit is this, the dispute is on the first earnout, which means we're using the $40 volume weighted average price of $40, right? Which leads to being able to use 70% uh, of that payment in stock with relatively small dilution, even with a very, very large, uh, you know, bridge earnout payment with a dispute. Multiple people though, because you start talking about this, they start, they brought up the concern, which I get, is that bridge may now dispute that $40 is being used, right? Let's say you have this huge uh, dispute amount that leads to a very high first earn out payment. People think, well, the stock price is around $4. Why should we be using 40? Given, you know, the stock price is so low today. I don't see how Bridge could dispute that and win, <laughs> right? Given it's not Cardlytics' fault that Bridge is the one who did wants to dispute this and not accept the payment, uh, you know, at the time it was supposed to, where the stock price was around forty bucks, right? Otherwise, if that was acceptable, well, then Cardlytics should do the same and just wait it out until the stock price re rebounds, goes surpasses forty dollars, um, and then they even let, leads to less dilution, right? Like that, but that makes no sense. And so the other side doesn't make sense. Again, you're kind of inverting the situation to think through it i don't i don't see how that could be one the merger agree, agreement is very clear and so i believe 40 dollars will be used for that first payment with the dispute so to determine how much stock could be used because there is the cap and if they hit the cap then the rest has to be cash right so even though you can use 70 percent uh in stock it, it might be that if you hit the cap first you might not be able to use 70 percent. you might have to use uh way more than 30 percent cash 
And so again, I go into depth on terms of what these numbers could be and what it could be calculated. Again, I guess I'll just state, just kind of go over this quickly. Is they say it would be 19.9%. This is in the, uh, the merger agreement of bridge uh, of the common stock of the voting power uh, or voting power parent outstanding as of the agreement date, right? And the agreement date was April 12th. Uh, April April 12th, 2021 was the agreement date. And so you can calculate roughly that's about 32 million shares. But what I don't know is, is the 19.9% um, as of the agreement date. So you just take those multiplied together, it leads to 6.4 million shares. Or is it 19.9% after the dilution? So you take, it's based on those that 32 million shares, but you determine, hey, it's, it's actually 19.9% after dilution, which leads to more shares outstanding. You know, that makes more sense that we don't want them to control more than 19.9% after dilution. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I, it, it more reads the first. And so that's where, you know, I have went both ways. So, but again, let's assume you have the first, you have a total first payment, payment with the dispute exceeds the cap of what could actually be used in stock. Right? And so I've calculated this out by taking the share count times that, that $40 leads to the total amount that could be used uh, for the stock portion. And then I divide that by 70% to get the total payment to be made. So again, the total payment for both of them, 368 million, or if you calculate it the other way, would be four, 400 million. And so let's say it's 500 million, meaning we can't use 70%. We're gonna have to even use more in cash. What this leads to is um, that you would need about 170 million to 240 million in cash to be paid. Well, that's more than 97 million that I specified, right? You would still need additional 80 to 144 million dollars to be paid by Cardlytics. If it was, you know, you know, it went from 126 million to 500 million with the dispute. Again, I'm trying to use a crazy number, almost you know, four times the amount. You're leading to this huge dispute amount that, that bridge is going to win. Leads to too much cash to be paid. Oh no, what's Cardlytics going to do? Well, I see multiple multiple rational solutions here. First, bridge carry alone, right? Pay bridge that additional amount over time with interest. Everyone wins. Cardlytics doesn't go over. Bridge still gets all their shares, and they they get have ownership of this business that is increasing and doing going to be could be doing quite well, and they still get paid their cash in time, right? Like because if if Cardlytics can't pay this, they just go bankrupt. But then there's not really any assets for them to collect. I mean, it just becomes such a mess that I don't even see bankruptcy being the issue here. I mean, the most logical thing is bridge carries alone, maybe some converts uh, where they can get some more shares at a later time. But again, just pay them back with some interest. Or again, we're, we're only talking then with, you know, because you're able to use stock for a portion of this, you have some liquidity, you're talking 80 to 140 million. You could get a loan from one of the, I mean, Cardlix, this is one of the advantages. They work with the banks. The banks probably don't want Carlix to go under and lose this aspect, right? Especially as the value proposition keeps increasing uh, and improving for them. So you can work with maybe one or multiple of the Carlix banks to get the loan, or maybe do something more unique, like a rev share deferral, right? Cardlex paid the banks, uh, you know, 140 million, then 100, my estimate, about 150 million this last year. So, and this is growing and it's going to continue to grow. So would, you know, maybe a rev share deferral of 140 million, where you then every single year for the next year and every year after you get that amount back and growing, 
I feel like that's a pretty slick, you know, way to handle this. You could even do it where it's like, okay, you have lower rev share this year, and then every year, and maybe in the next few years, it's a little bit higher for rev share until they get paid back what they what they deferred, uh, and they get some interest on top of it. Again, every single year they're going to get. Why would you want to lose this? Why would you want Carlos to go under? Where over an amount that you get every single year in growing, plus other benefits like less attrition, higher card spending. It just doesn't make sense why this would just fail or go bankrupt. Um, there's just too many solutions that are easy. You could do an equity raise, but I think that's probably less likely. It's too dilutive at this price and it's probably hard in this environment. But again, the, the first bullet, you know, going with the bridge, like carrying the loan is the one that I just keep thinking about uh, when I think about worst case. I don't feel like the worst case is simple as too high a bridge earn now, bankruptcy. <laughs> like That's what people keep saying. But given Carlix is about EBITDA and free cash flow positive, they have the ability to pay back, back debt. Therefore, I feel like the most logical solution would be to make bridge, uh, make that bridge payment over time with interest. Both parties win. Obviously, bankruptcy uh, risk would increase then because of the additional debt, but it doesn't put uh, Carlix shareholders at immediate risk today. Karim doesn't lose his 1.3 million shares, uh, which could be worth a, an extreme amount in the future. And Carlix is likely to be able to service that debt because they're about to be EBITDA free cash flow positive. However, I think we can narrow, again, this was just some hypothetical number. I was trying to pick something four times the amount that was just extreme that would lead to not being able to pay the amount with the cash that's on the balance sheet today, right? And saying, hey, this that also shows that even if I'm wrong with a lot of things, there's solutions Carlytics can do, right? That's, the, that's pretty much the point I'm trying to communicate here. But I don't think that's going to happen, right? That's just us making up a number. I think we can narrow down the potential dispute items and corresponding potential payments down to the following. Given we have heard that the dispute is on ARR as well as in relation to possibly gap revenue, because there's been a they haven't specified that. They've just kind of been mentioning ARR, uh, but there's been mention regarding that there's been questions about gap revenue, which maybe brings into question when revenue is recognized. Possibly when it's recognized because the payment, the first earnout payment, is based on just April ARR. So if revenue is not recognized until afterwards for stuff done in the past, Bridge could be disputing that, and that's what I think. So the first thing is we have this eight hundred thousand. Um, it was brought up, and I think in the second quarter that we said we recognized eight hundred thousand dollars of revenue in in Q2 from contracts with effective dates in Q1. So if that eight hundred and how I've I've looked at it, that additional eight hundred. Uh, 800K does not look to be an April ARR. It was after April ARR. So uh, it could be that Bridge wants a portion of that 800,000 in their April calculation, which would lead to way higher you know, Bridge earnout. However, that seems very unlikely to occur because I don't think this is reoccurring revenue. ARR, annual reoccurring revenue. This is not, this is to make up for the past, right? Therefore, while it's possible this item's being what's disputed, which then I don't think they'll win, uh, I see it as less likely to be won and paid upon. My best guess is this relates to the renewals that I'm gonna discuss next, uh, including paying, uh, paying back uh, the temporary decrease in revenue uh, from both the large contracts that expired in Q1 and possibly even back paying for the higher renewal amounts. So I'm thinking this 800K is something related to reoccurring revenue, which I could see makes sense that maybe they're disputing upon it, saying, hey, which I'm gonna discuss here. This makes way more sense. I think the 800K might even relate to the renewals. And so again, let me. Uh, this is where I think I can understand a little bit more, is in the first quarter, Carlytics said, despite the impressive growth in revenue, ARR, which is calculated on annualized revenue uh, from the last month of the quarter, 
declined quarter over quarter from 15 million to 14 million. This temporary decline was primarily due to expiration of two large contracts in Q1 that are, were very close to extending at very uh, or, or even higher ARR renewals. So again, just to repeat, revenue declined. So that's why I think that they may be paying them back because I'm guessing these these two clients were still in force. But for some reason, they reported where the revenue declines, but it comes back even for the April ARR payment, right? So I say from my estimate, it looks like the high renewal prices though were, I think you had revenue decline from these contracts expiring. That, the amount it declined, I think came back for April. So that's in there. But what was not in the April payment from what I'm seeing is the higher renewal amounts, possibly, but might not be. And if it's not, you could see why they're disputing this because it's like, hey, these, these contracts were already in force and this happened in Q1 that we were having these discussions. Um, and so this should be part of our April payment. Therefore, I can see where Bridge you know, might be disputing, like we want that higher renewal amount in the April uh, calculation. But, you know, despite the contracts expiring, okay. But I say, I can also understand if the renewal wasn't finalized until after April, right? So it's where it's gap revenue and it's about a function of when it's recognized. So it could make sense of why it wasn't included. And then it would also explain, hey, if this didn't happen until later, we want to back, you know, have this, right, you know, have this adjustment uh, because we actually should have been receiving this in the past. And that's why you have that 800K. I don't quite know, but again, I'm even if this is a little confusing because I know how in depth this is, I have a slick way that I am able to rationally uh, account for all this, including where there might be another part of the dispute is this $25 million contract. What I felt is most likely the case is related to the large $25 million bridge Cardlytics joint client that was signed. Um, it, it takes about five to six months from Carlytics, or according to Carlytics, to sign a bridge client. So it could be where bridge started discussions maybe in January, but they, and they think, hey, we should get credit for them because we, we start discussions and start talking with them in January, but only for the revenue, uh, you know, maybe they weren't signed till later. Um, and so that the revenue wasn't recognized until after April and therefore not in that April ARR calculation. Now I do assume this new client is reflected in the bridge financials today, where you can look at the bridge reoccurring revenue. So it, after April, you can see, I think actually as of May, <laughs> revenue increases and it stays roughly, if you adjust for that 800K, it increases in May and stays pretty much constant about like $1.8 million until September. So you have uh, May, June, July, August, September, all increased up in revenue at a constant rate of 1.8 million. And I think that accounts for bridges portion of the 25 million. So I don't think it's just as simple because you, if you if you look at 25 million divided by 24, that's a very large amount. Uh, but I think a lower, it's a lower amount that bridge is recognizing in their revenue because it's a joint deal or some revenue is being recognized by Carlytics. But I think, again, because it's the bridge revenue is increasing and it's staying at a constant rate and increased by a large amount from April to May and ongoing, which I think is part of the dispute, is you have this higher revenue afterwards, is I think it includes both the, 20, the portion of the $25 million contract and the renewals. And so for my dispute calculation, because then the reoccurring revenue jumps up to that, about, about that $1.8 million range, that's what I'm gonna use. I take that times by 12, you get about, uh, or I just I use end up using September ARR, which is about like 21 million, which is significantly higher than what is currently being used. And that's what I use for the dispute. And I think, again, that accounts for things that make rational sense of what could be argued here. 
I do want to just point out, uh, it is important to know that if the client was included in the first earnout, they would also be a second anniversary customer for the second earnout. However, the contract is a two-year contract. Maybe this was on purpose. Uh, and the second earnout is the increase in revenue from the existing customers. So there shouldn't be an increase because it's a, a twenty-five million dollar contract over two years. So there's not like they're not renewing again. One could argue that maybe the higher revenue in the second, like that they could recognize higher revenue in the second year. Uh, but to me, it looks like everything's being recognized at a constant rate. Because if you look at bridge revenue, uh, the monthly revenue from you know about I think May to September has been consistent about around 1.8 million. Uh, so I don't expect a year-over-year -year increase because I think they're re they're recognizing this at a constant uh, basis, and therefore I wouldn't expect a significant increase of revenue for this client until maybe the third year, which is outside the earnout period. So that doesn't really matter. What matters is, is if the first portion is included for that first earnout, which I'm going to do. So in order to, uh, to gauge the extreme, I think it makes most sense to look at the third quarter or the September ARR, because that's how they're calculating it. Is And again, it's about 1.8 million consistent, sorry, my voice cracked there, consistently. It's been about 1.8 million monthly. And so I think that's a, like, it doesn't really matter which month we pick because it, on average, I mean, that's way more. I think it was around maybe 1.5 million in April. Uh, and again, gets multiplied by 12 and then it gets multiplied by 20 for the calculation, which is why it gets magnified so large and why people are concerned. But again, I think we can narrow it down and it, to this possibility here. So again, if I take the September ARR payment, it, I believe because of that consistent nature, it reflects both the higher renewal rate that was possibly not in a April, as well as this $25 million contract, which I think is being represented. So therefore, my best estimate, again, the way that we calculate uh, the first earnout is it's equal to 20 times the annualized reoccurring revenue uh, based on the month preceding the anniversary. But again, instead of taking April, we're going to take uh, September, which is much higher. And then we subtract 12.5. So if we take 22 million minus 12.5 million times 20, we get a payment of 192 million. That is much more, significantly more than 126 million. Then we subtract the brokerage free fees and other bonuses before we take the 30-70 split, 30% cash, 70% stock, where there, where in the 10Q, it mentions 6.9 million brokerage fees. I think there's some referral fees and transaction bonuses. I Again, I've thought about this so much. I put, again, I'll, I'll even show you. I, I go through the work, show where I'm getting the, the language, and then I discuss the fees, why I think the fees are handled this way. Uh, <laughs> again, I wanted to make sure I was getting everything uh I thought about everything and I put it here. So I'm actually trying to even include more fees here. And so if I do this, if I take, if I go through the numbers here, I'll just keep reading through this. Cause again, it's a, probably the most important aspect and we're about done. Uh, we have $192 million earnout. If we subtract the $8 million in fees, we're left with 184 million, uh, where 70% or 129 million is in stock at the $40 and 15 cents a price. So that only leads to $3 million or sorry, 3 million shares of dilution, which would be di below the dilution cap. Yes, it's a lot, but it's not that much. <laughs> like we're not, we're not talking about that many shares that totally ruins the investment case here. Uh, but it leaves 50 million in cash for the 30% component. We add back the fees that we have to pay. And so that leads to $63 million in cash. That means the extra cash needed for the dispute would be 19 million more dollars than we expected. 63 million minus the 43 million expected. But we have 97 million dollars available for the dispute. 
So if the, again, if we go through the calculations, the dispute is much still below. Again, this this assumes Bridge wins, <laughs> right? And it assumes it's both the $25 million contract and the renewal and not something else just frivolous and unnecessary here, but assumes it's you know something along this, this scale at a much higher ARR that leads to just $19 million of additional cash. Because again, 70% can be paid by the $40 stock price, which is just, it's a super benefit. And like I specified, I don't see that being disputed because if they say, oh, the stock price is super low because of where we're at today, well then let's just keep waiting until the stock price is high and I don't see that happening. So in summary, uh, accounting for the additional payment at Bridge won the dispute, we are left with $77 million of liquidity after paying both Bridge earnouts. Uh, and again, this is, this is <laughs> with 100% Look at it right here. I, I, ha I have all the numbers, and again, I have all the assumptions at the, in the footnotes. This is with both earnouts, right? With a hundred percent cash for the second earnout, you're still left with 77 million, right? And again, this is under a conservative macro where I, su I assumed a large decline. Again, first quarter. I mean, we're, we're not hitting any of the financial targets. They said they're going to have sing uh, low to mid single digit EBITDA loss. Well, I have double digits. They, uh, Carlix assumed that they'll be EBITDA positive by uh, the second quarter of next year. I assume they're not. They assume they're gonna be cash flow positive. I assume they're not. I, they assume they're gonna have growth next year. I assume they're not. Like I, I, I mean, ARPU assumptions that are almost near uh, COVID levels. Like I am trying to be as conservative and then I even do another scenario where I'm even more conservative. Now, someone, people will look at this and they'll say, oh, we look at this total liquidity. Uh, you have about only $8 million liquidity after paying for the converts, right? The, two, uh, the 2025 maturing converts. I'm like, oh, you got me, right? That's assuming Cardlix pays 100% of the maturing converts with cash and does no equity raise and no refinance. And again, look at this. If, if they stay on track and they're hitting numbers they've already hit in the past, back in 2018, which I think is conservative, and they only and you know get, get the full benefit of the new ad server and product level offers, I'm, I'm not assuming crazy levels of ARPU here. They should be uh, free or EBITDA positive and free cash flow positive for multiple quarters before the maturing converts. So they should be able to either equity do an equity raise or refinance these converts and not use 100% cash like I'm assuming. So I'm assuming here that they could use 100% cash and they're still fine, showing how well they're, they're positioned for liquidity. Now, others might say, whoa, what about that 75% that you're assuming for uh, that the accounts receivable will be factored? That's quite high. Again, you subtract 72, you don't need this. You don't need this to be fine. Right? That's what I'm like, that's what I'm saying here is like Carlix is still fine even without the accounts receivable. And here, to top it off, sure, that's assuming I don't even think it would be that hard to get a you know securitize or factor it. But you the top five advertisers account for 13%. And so I actually go in, in the appendix, if you look, I actually put in 13%. You're still fine. Um, and again, you still have all the I'm only assuming in this scenario one growth offset, right? Essentially, I'm assuming maybe that they can get some of those new advertisers from the pipeline at reduced rates. So I'm not assuming new ad server benefits, uh, product level offers, optimizing pricing, optimizing monetization, making it easier to buy, more automation. I'm not assuming that, right? So it's like Carlinus just has so much they, they can do. And so, again, the most important component then is the line of credit. They do need that line of credit. With just that additional liquidity resource in, in addition to cash, they can handle a worse macro. They can miss EBITDA and free cash flow targets. They can lose the bridge dispute and pay much more cash um, and pay 100% for the bridge earnout.
but just that additional liquidity. This is why it was so good to hear Carlitos was working with their bank partner to ensure that they would have that uh, under a bad macro environment. Uh, give, and so it's, now I think there's a much higher probability that they'll be able to draw upon it uh, and they could even avoid uh, any dilution with the second earnout and pay 100% cash with it. So um, I go over the specifics of this scenario uh, sharing even different levels to account for the different uh, levels of accounts receivable. Uh, I actually detail the supporting assumptions, and then I do two more projections. I do a best estimate, what I think is more reasonable, trying to play off of the EBITDA positive and the free cash flow positive and some of the you know growth in 2023 that management expects. So my best estimate is really trying to play to what management expects, as well as that, and I don't change future ARPU assumptions. I leave those constant. And then I even go more conservative, right? I, I, I say it's my most conservative, where I assume a 27% decline in revenue in 2023, assuming no growth offsets, which I think is overly conservative, and Carlytics can still make it through it. And I discuss it in detail of what would have to happen, uh, but Carlytics can do it. They're fine. So one thought is, is from an investment perspective, would be to wait or to invest more. Uh, to, so either to wait to, to invest for the first time or invest more until there's clarity on the outcomes, uh, such as related to management or if Crim can execute positively on either finishing amending the line of, uh, the line of credit to ensure that it's enforced and be able to use under a bad macro, or to ensure that uh, you know they resolve the bridge dispute. And if it's an excessive amount that, you know, even though it looks like Carlyx's bill would still be able to pay for it, that even if it was something crazy, you wait to see, oh, could they, you know, have Bridge carry the debt? Or you wait till, you know, Carlyx completes the second payment and possibly with 100% cash. The advantage is, is it reduces the risk of investing um, in something that could decline more if something, you know, bad happens there. It is very possible, though, you know, that other investors who sold don't return. This is something, you know, I don't ever hear people really talk about this, so maybe it's not <laughs> the way to think about it, but something I've seen and I've thought about it, and especially with now a small micro cap company, that if they sold, they might not come back. So even if you have favorable announcements on this, it might not lead to a, a change in the stock price. So you might have a change in the risk reward. Risk improves, um, like it decreases, and reward is, you know, the same as before. There was no change in the stock price, so you can still uh could still buy so that's definitely a way you could handle this i personally have elected not to do that method and instead invested more around these levels because i feel carlix has a high a very high probability as i've discussed of executing on the above items which means the risk reward possibly decreases from the risk really staying the same because i don't see it changing much because I, I see it even if they i believe they're going to accomplish these things but they're therefore the reward could decrease if the stock price does in fact increase or something from here till then more announcements maybe they sign a new bank like i just i don't like waiting i like taking advantage of the opportunity because even more simply given i think carlix can get through this I love being able to acquire so many shares at these prices, um, where even if the stock price was even slightly higher, you know, you you lose out on how many shares you can acquire. Uh, and I like thinking in terms of share count, and because I start doing my valuation, I'm thinking, okay, I think this is what each share could be worth. Wow, I, each share is actually pretty impactful. So I have been aggressively acquiring as many shares as possible. In the future, <laughs> uh, I might share some of the. Met I I don't think I've told a single soul besides the people. I've actually done the deals with of how I've been acquired some of these shield. Uh, I've been doing some creative financing, uh, you know, non-callable debt type situations, but with some interesting aspects because again, I would rather, 
uh, take advantage of the situation to be wrong than to be right for this to work out like I think and I didn't take advantage of the situation, right? Kind of like, a, you know, the Bell Ridge oil situation uh, with Charlie Munger. That, I keep going back to that. And funny enough, I just want to, like, I know this is a, a sidebar, but I had in my cart on eBay that Bell Ridge oil sign and I, whatever reason, I didn't buy it. And then sure enough, it's sold off eBay. And then I see uh, Monish Pabrai posting about it. And I'm like, I think he, it was the same sign because it was the same numbers for the oil film. And what's funny about this is the whole story about Bell Oil is Charlie Munger essentially not taking advantage of the opportunity. And I didn't take advantage of the, I was going to buy that to remind me. And then I didn't take advantage of the opportunity with buying that sign. And I'm like, oh, it's just quite, it's ironic, right? And so here again with Carlytics, I'm not going to make that same mistake. And I'm buying as much shares as I, I possibly could. Uh, and I can. And... I love it because I never thought I would ever be able to have this many shares. So maybe they'll be worth nothing in the future. Uh, but again, I'd ra I'm, I'm more willing to take that risk than it'd be worth a ton. And you're sitting there like Charlie Munger and regretting it forever. So in closing, I continue to believe the probability of achieving the long-term potential of the business continues to increase, especially under Karim. It, uh, it is simply a function of getting there, getting to the long-term, uh, which means getting through these two bridge earnouts. Given Carlytics has plenty of liquidity, I think it is more likely than not that Carlytics makes it through this and achieves a higher portion of what is possible in the long, uh, long run, given is now under Karim. And even if I'm completely off in my assumptions and my interpretations related to those bridge earnouts and the dispute, I gain comfort in knowing how many other possible solutions there are uh, to be able to handle the bridge earnouts and that excess cash component. Uh, others want 100% certainty. They want to know with 100% certainty what's going to happen. Uh, but that comes at the cost of considerably higher prices and lower returns, which is funny enough, is what I believe will happen with Carlytics uh, and the ad pricing because of the certainty in measurement. As stated in the beginning, it's not every day that you're able to find a great business with great new management at a great price. That is typically only possible when others do not believe one or any combination of those to be true. With Carlytics, I believe some do not think any of those are true, despite what I've stated in this post, uh, which contributes to making this even more attractive. So just quick update. Um, you know, I really like, you know, it's been a long time since I did a write-up in a full post, but I've kind of been liking the cadence of this. And the reason I haven't done a full, po full post in a while is I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this situation and doing research um, and then, you know, I've been adding all this to my research notes. So if you go to my Carlytics research notes on Twitter, I do, uh, I always post when I make an update. I've been updating those all the time. But by not doing a full post, it allows me to spend more time thinking about the situation, talking with others, researching, and I can produce probably what I feel are better quality write-ups. In addition, the reason I haven't been doing posts, up, posts is I've been spending a lot of time trying to take advantage of the situation. Like I mentioned, I've been doing some creative financing strategies, which not only take time to think about, but take time to negotiate. I was going back and forth with somebody about the, my last one that I did, which is by far the most creative thing, and I was proud of it. It is cool that uh, what I accomplished, it's a little complex, but it can be, you know, again, you have this complex thing that you can try to boil down, make it very simple for the person on the other side. They will make out so well, you know, I don't as well, like if Carlytics doesn't work, but if it does, I, I do, <laughs> right? That, and that's the risk I'm taking. Um, 
I've also been just spending a lot of time researching previous businesses, which I have new research notes called general research notes. And then I've been researching new prospective ideas, not only uh, you know, private business in my area, commercial real estate, but also public companies. And I might do, I've been adding all those notes into a, a draft research notes that I might post. So if you upgrade to the research notes, um, not only are you supporting me, it, it, it's kind of maybe it looks as a way of, you know, if you got any value out of this, I'm your cheap analyst, <laughs> right? Uh, or if you want access to all this information or information I haven't posted uh, elsewhere, consider upgrading to the research notes. And again, reminder, there is a lot more information in the appendix, uh, in the footnotes, if you're interested. So everyone, thanks for watching. I know this was quite in depth. Make sure you check out the post if you want all the details. Uh, thanks for watching and I'll see you in the next one.